Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Friends, how is everybody? Good. I am thrilled personally to have the opportunity to be here with Dr. Helene Gale and with all of you. And first wanted to ask the only trick question I'll ask this evening. Um, I promise. Um, and that is, what didn't we know about your bio? What, what was not told? <laughs> uh, let's see, what was not told? I'm from Buffalo, New York, the middle of... Uh, uh, middle child of five children, um, which, uh, as many people say, birth order is sometimes destiny. Uh, I grew up with four other very opinionated siblings, so being in the middle of them, I learned how to fend for myself and, and speak up. <laughs> Good. I was curious, um, among the international aid organizations, CARE has a long and respected history and and how do you distinguish yourself from other international aid organizations like World Vision or Save the Children what what is the distinctive position for care well first let me just say a few things about care for people who aren't aware of care uh, we've been around for about 70 years. We started as the organization that gave out care packages after World War II. So we were very involved in the rebuilding of Europe after World War II and really focused on providing basic um, food and, and other life necessities uh, as part of that, that effort. And so after World War II was done and, and that effort was over, CARE continued as an organization that really primarily responded to disasters. That's kind of our roots, looking at uh, people post-conflict. And so we really did a lot of work. It was much more short-term. How do you get food to people in difficult situations? We evolved and um, became global, working in, first in Asia, then in the Americas, and then Africa, Middle East. And so we're now a global organization, but really over time have shifted from focusing on how do you meet people's basic needs and working with poor, the poorest communities around the world to thinking about how do we really develop programs that lead to long-term sustainable change with the mission of ultimately ending global poverty and realizing that while you can continue to meet people's basic needs, if you don't also look at how do you give them the tools that they need, build their capacity and empower communities, then you're really continuing just to give out um, short-term um, assistance. And so, you know, I like to think that we've kind of moved from aid to impact, or if you use the metaphor of giving a person to fish, uh, a fish, we've moved from giving people fish to teaching people to fish to really looking at making sure that there are fish in the stream. So what are all those conditions that make sure that people have what they need, but that that can be sustained? Um, you know, how do we distinguish ourselves? I think, you know, everybody has somewhat of a niche. One of the things that we've really focused on over the last few years is this notion that if you empower girls and women, you will also have the most long-lasting change because you have that kind of ripple effect that you talked about. Um, so, you know, that's one way in which we distinguish ourselves. 
Um, you know, in the case of an organization like the Red Cross, they're really still much more an emergency relief, disaster relief. Save the Children and World Vision are primarily focused on children as their main goal. So I think, you know, in some ways we overlap a lot, but in some ways we all also have our own separate niches. You know, I think the big thing that we try to do is to make sure that we collaborate. Because this, you know, this world and the issues that we deal with are too big for any organization, even a relatively large organization like ours. So how do we work together so that this community of organizations that are struggling to make this a better world, we're all doing that in the way that shares information, works, and looks at how do we build on each other's comparative advantages. I love that. Talk to us a little bit about the scope. So how many countries, how many people, and then because uh, I want to get back to the girls because that's yeah. really what I want to talk about all night. Yeah. But at any rate, but right now, talk about scope and people and then execution. How does the work get done on the ground? Yeah. Is it through your employees, your partners? How, how, does, right. how does the execution work? So uh, in terms of scope, we're in about 87 countries around the world, in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and Caribbean, Middle East. Um, and we also do in our own home countries, the, the, the countries that make up kind of the CARE Confederation because it's CARE USA, which was the original CARE, but we also have an umbrella organization of, of other members, particularly uh, European members. So we also do work in our own countries, which is focused primarily on policymakers remembering that the global poor are important. So that we made, so that's the not 87 countries that that we focus on. We reach, um, we estimate that last year we reached somewhere in the range of 90 million people with our programs. So, you know, we have a, a, a big impact um, and are able to have a broad reach. Our budget is about 500 million. Um, so, you know, relatively, for, for a, a not-for-profit, relatively large. And we do a lot of our work increasingly um, more and more of our work is through partners. Now, we have, in the countries that we work in, we have a country office, so we have a, we have a presence because we feel like it's important that we're part of those communities, that we're not just flying in and flying out, that we develop relationships with our communities. Many of the countries that we're in, we've been in for decades, some as long as uh, 50, 60 years, so we stay, we work with communities over the long haul. But increasingly, more and more of our work is done through partners because, you know, as the countries that we work with build their own capacity, what we want to do is to do what we can do best as, as an international organization. We can bring resources, we can bring um, technical skills, we can bring the global reach, we can bring lessons from Peru to uh, countries in Ghana or, you know, countries in Africa. We can, you know, we can look at what works in one situation and how do you adapt that. So we feel like you know our global nature is important because the local organization thinks about the local context. They may not have the you know the opportunity to share across. So that, you know that's something else we bring. But we really do feel like our job is to build that capacity, work much more through partners, work with local NGOs to get uh, the work implemented, and increasingly our role is how do we build that kind of capacity. Perfect. Um, are there countries where the circumstances of war, disaster, or other challenges have forced you to pull back, pull out, or be have your work be at risk? And just if you could speak about those kinds of situations, if they've occurred, when they've occurred, and how you've handled them. Sure, and, and they, you know, they, they range. I mean, we work in some of the most uh, difficult 
and unstable communities and um, countries around the world, and you know the the correlation between instability and poverty um, is clear. And so, uh, by definition, many of the countries that we work in are some of the most unstable. We've had, um, as an example, in Iraq, our country director was kidnapped and ultimately killed. Um, so, you know, that's a country that we felt it was obviously no longer safe for us to, to, to be in. We've been, um, you know, in countries where because of the amount of scrutiny and repression, uh, our staff can't do their jobs and we've had to pull out of countries like that. We've had countries that because of political challenges have kicked out any organization that is international and they suspect that we're there for not good reasons. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of those that you know, look around Syria. I mean, we're working all around, around the Syrian crisis and doing what we can in Syria, but mainly working in the countries around Syria uh, who are taking people who are refugees, South Sudan. So, you know, anything that you read in the paper, we're likely there, and we're, we're, we're struggling with that balance all the time of our humanitarian imperative to help people who are in need and who are in fragile um, and, and difficult circumstances. But at the same time, we also have to think about are we putting our workforce at risk and because most of the people who work for CARE come from the countries in which uh, we work, we don't want to be a part of putting those people in any greater danger because of the kind of work that they're doing that sometimes is seen as an in, in opposition with governments who don't have the best interest of their people in mind. Certainly. And I would think that that thread could draw through to your work with girls because in some environments, working with girls is in itself risky business. I don't mean the teenagers that I have to have, but risky it could be risky business working right. with and advancing girls. And so talk a little bit about how you derived that strategy, how long you've been in that strategy, and then what the challenges have been to, to implementing the strategy. Yeah, and so, you know, this is something that has evolved over time as we've looked at how do we have the greatest impact in populations that we work? And, you know, we say that we work on you know, kind of basic human needs, but also look at what are the underlying causes that keep people mired in poverty. And, you know, a clear one is uh, situations of marginalization, discrimination, gender inequality. So we look at those sorts of things. And we really felt that one of the things that we could do that could have a huge impact across all of our work is having this gendered lens and looking at, you know, given the fact that girls and women are most impacted by poverty, you know, take any statistics, out of school, um, children who are out of school, adults who are illiterate, people who don't have access to health services, whatever indicator you want to look at, girls and women are disproportionately impacted. But again, we realize that if you can change the life of a girl, her life is going to be different, her children's life are going to be different, a woman is going to put her excess income into her family, her family is improved, she puts different issues on the agenda, she's the, the uh, representative on the town council than her uh, male counterparts. So, you know, we know all of these are the kinds of things, corruption goes down when you have more women in political positions. So, you know, for all these statistics we know, we just thought that that was one of the ways that we could have the greatest long-term impact. But as you said, it's also in some societies a difficult proposition. And I think that we've been able to 
um, in the country across our work because we're trusted and because we work with communities to find their own solutions to problems and how to get around these obstacles, you know, and building that kind of trust, I think we've been very successful. So I'll give just, just an example. Um, you know, we were working in Afghanistan. We've been in Afghanistan almost continuously um, until, uh, except for uh, the Soviet um, occupation time. And so, you know, we've been there in tough times where educating a girl was actually considered illegal. But we were able to continue operating schools because the community had gotten invested in it. Fathers understood that their, their, their daughters were better off if they got an education. So they came up with, all right, we'll, we'll not say that, we're, that we have schools. We'll say that they're sewing schools. It's okay to teach a girl to, teach, to sew. So, you know, we were able to continue teaching girls writing and arithmetic and, you know, history and all the rest by calling it sewing school. The community came up with that solution. And so, you know, it wasn't us, it was, it was men in the community who wanted to see their daughters continue getting educated because they had realized that there's value. You know, a lot of the programs, we, we have a large program in Africa called Access Africa that looks at um, providing savings opportunities for women. They pool pennies to get what amounts to pennies together save their money together, give out loans to each other. We give them management training so they can start businesses. They start building their assets. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful opportunity, one that has empowered, um, uh, at this point, millions of, of African women uh, who participated. But many of these women say that when they first talked to their husbands about be participating in these groups, they weren't able to because a lot of them are basically prisoners in their own homes. But we worked with the community, little by little. A woman who was part of it would then go and she, you know, her husband would then go talk to a husband of a woman who wanted to be part of the community and part of this village uh, savings and loans program. And so little by little, the men started being our best advocates because they saw that their wives were different. They had a partner, not a burden anymore. They had somebody who was contributing to the household expenses. They were able to send their, their children to school. So, you know, these are the kinds of experiences that when you work with the community, they find the solutions and they, you know, you just kind of give them the tools to do that. Do it. That's beautiful. Um, what's your favorite, and I know this will be hard to say, but, you know, if you picked your favorite success story around the, the Women and Girls Initiative, what is it? Is it Afghanistan, or is it where is it in the world that you feel like you have really made lasting impact? Yeah, I guess I, I, um, it's hard to say any one place because every country, just like the, the country of Texas, is um, <laughs> <laughs> so vast that it, it's really difficult. But I give you some examples of things that made me really uh, excited, and we were talking a little bit about. The fact that the that the way business community the business community is working to create social change is really very different than it was 10, 15 years ago when corporate social responsibility was writing a check, having somebody build a schoolhouse, put it in a brochure, and people say, you know, I, I did a good deal. Nowadays, companies are really realizing that it is both in their business interest as well as kind of their social fabric to be involved in projects that create social value while they're creating, uh, generating economic value. 
So one program that I think that, that I still think of when I was in Egypt not too long ago, visiting um, this program that we do with Danone, the dairy producing company, where women, oftentimes who live in a one-room shack with one cow, are learning how to increase the yield of milk from that cow. Those those women now become part of a community collection program. That milk then becomes part of the supply chain for Danone in Egypt. And that project that is often one woman with one cow is now supplying 20% of Danone's uh, milk um, yield product in in Egypt. And we're seeing more and more stories like that. Small farmers in um, Madagascar who grow vanilla beans. You know, 80% of, of vanilla comes from Madagascar. How many do that? Well, we're, we're working with General Mills, who owns Hagedas. Hagedas needs vanilla beans. So we're working with smallholder farmers in Madagascar who are now becoming part of Hagedas global supply chain. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that are, you know, this, this notion of doing well by doing good and having this shared values sort of proposition where you can create economic value that also leads to creating social value and having sustainable income streams, which is much better than having a grant that runs out after three years. Um, this is a way of creating sustainable long-term change. That is a wonderful, wonderful model. And we were talking a little bit before just from the background that, that I had had in working in, in the corporate world before I came here, that that change, that shift has been driven principally over the last five to eight right. years. Um, and is it all about what the Gateses did, or are there others that helped lead that charge? I think, that, you know, I think it's a whole, uh, you know, some people say there's, you know, these tipping point phenomena. You know, I think there was, a, there were enough people who started realizing that, um, you know, if you want to have long-term sustainable change, you know, there are two sources of renew- renewable capital. It's government funding because you get tax revenues, and it's you know what corporations in the private sector do, which earn income. <laughs> and if you can figure out how you put all of those to good use, and this doesn't mean that we shouldn't still uh, have government-supported programs through our foreign assistance programs, and we're big supporters that the government, our our nation needs to continue to be generous. We still need to make sure that we have foreign assistance, but it means that you know. We need different sources of resources for different things. Grant funding is incredibly important. A lot of the programs that we now have that have become social businesses started out as grants. You need some funding to incubate. But then, how can you turn those as quickly as possible into self-sustaining businesses? So it's really, I think a lot of forces have come together um, to realize that you know this, we, we need to do aid and, and develop the assistance differently. Take your pie and tell me how much today is in that kind of initiative versus the the basic needs. I mean, have you gone 75, 25? How far have you been able to push toward that model? I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that I could give a proportion. We're still um, just starting in, yeah. in, in that. Um, you know, we're about 30% of our funding comes from the federal government, and that's down from about 10 years ago. It would have been 70%. Really? So we've really made a big shift, and there's you know a whole range of reasons for that, but you know a big shift to um, diversify our funding. Um, another 15 or so probably comes from private foundations like the Gates Foundation. 
uh, another 10% or so from corporations and then the rest from individuals. And we're really looking at, um, as an example, we set up within CARE a for-profit uh, entity to actually start doing more in the social enterprise space so that we can do more earned income type of, of projects. But that's still nascent. Sure. Yeah. Sure. But I think that's another, I mean, very smart and very forward uh, thinking kind of strategy that uh, embedding a for-profit entity within right. this large non-profit right. that has been known forever as the one that gives um, and not not only the one that learns to earn. Right. So that's a that's yeah. a very smart smart strategy. Go back on a personal side for a minute. Tell us a little bit about what has been hardest for you personally in this role. Um, I mean, you, you're strong, you're powerful, you've been in tough tough places around your career and and been very successful. But what have been the challenges that you personally had to overcome in this role? Um, well, first, it's the, it's the first time that I've been a CEO. And for anybody who's ever been a CEO, even if you've had lots of big management jobs, you know, there is something about um, uh, being at the helm of an organization and all that comes with that. And, you know, the, the notion of it's lonely at the top, I mean, you really do, you know, it is a very different world to be the head of an organization and take the good with the bad. You know, you, you kind of get blamed for everything that's <laughs> bad. And you get blamed for everything that's good. So, you know, I, yeah, I think just uh, working for a board the first time in my life that I, you know, learning, we were talking a little bit about uh, boards and board dynamics. So, you know, I think some of that is just, it was a big learning. And, and there are a lot of things that I would probably do differently. Um, one of the things that is, always a challenge in mission-driven organization, you, you tend to think a lot about the mission, but not as much about the platform that, develop, that, that delivers the mission. And so, you know, I think I was hired at CARE because of my experiences, um, you know, kind of much more my technical background, the things that I had done in public health that are very transferable. But at the end of the day, I was running a business. And I had to learn a lot about what it takes to keep a business afloat. How do you do what's smart? How do you make smart personnel decisions? How do you make decisions about things like putting in a new financial system? And what, you know, so the nuts and bolts of running, running a business, I think, was probably my, in the end, my biggest challenge and the hardest lesson. But it's also been one of the most rewarding because I, you know, I, I have, grown to appreciate those skills and how hard it is and how hard it is to, particularly in the not-for-profit environment where you are so dependent on other people's resources and how to be strategic when you're dependent on other people's agendas to a certain extent. So, you know, I think some of those are the kinds of things. Great observation. Go back a little bit because you, you really transformed the revenue stream by virtue of changes in the governmental funding, and what were some of the reasons that governmental funding switched so dramatically in your in your makeup, and uh, and the replacement strategies? You know, how long how long before you'd weathered that transition? Right, and so a big reason why we made that shift. I mean, one, we thought it was smart to diversify resources, but we also intentionally stopped taking a certain source of revenue that had actually been our real funding base for a long time. And that was 
being part of the practice of, of monetizing food. Huh. And so there, there, a lot of U.S. government food aid for the longest time uh, was built on this practice of taking U.S. grains, over, shipping them overseas, and then converting that into cash and then using that cash for development programs. As you can imagine, that's a pretty inefficient process. You know, you're taking grain from here, shipping it, you've got to store it, you've got to go through all it takes to convert it to cash. And so a lot of our organization was basically a, uh, a broker <laughs> for, for grain. Yeah. Now, besides it being inefficient, and studies show that it lost about 33 cents on every dollar in that whole transaction because it has to be shipped on American carriers and there's this whole, this whole chain. But the biggest reason why we, we decided to opt out was that it was, it was counter to the very thing we were trying to do. We're flooding local markets with foreign um, uh, subsidies in countries that depend on agriculture as their engine. So we were robbing the very countries that we were trying to become, have become economically self-sufficient. On the other hand, it was a huge source of revenue. So we were the only NGO that said we would opt out of this. And as you can imagine, that, you know, it was, it, that, that was quite a hit. That was somewhere in the range of 50 to 80 million dollars every year. Wow. Uh, but we really just felt so strongly that it was the right thing to do. Now fast forward, and this last year, um, the, the budget of USAID, which is where it came through, uh, basically has now opted out of monetization and, and most all but, but one uh, of their major grants is using non-monetized food aid as the way in which they're doing it. So, you know, we feel great because we took a stand and were able to actually shift the tide in that direction. In the meantime, we needed to scramble. It was right around the same time, just as we were opting out of it. It was right around the time that the economic crash came along, so you know, and declines in our overall, overall revenue. But you know, um, we just did the things you need to do. You shrink a little bit in order to grow. Yes, awesome. Um, I see that our fearless leader is here, <laughs> and so Jim, I'm going to ask one more question, and then do you want to come up to do the field the Q and A? I can do it. Okay, you're stuck with me. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so um, the, the the last question I have is: What are the three things that would happen in our world if care ceased to exist? What are the what are the things that would happen? What are the impacts if care ceased to exist? What are the things that you are most significantly impacting? Well, I think. You know, one is that being a voice in the development community for girls and women. And while I think there are a lot of organizations who have that focus as a particular niche, we're the only large international NGO that, that um, has that as that as something that's so core to what we do. So I think that that would be, I think that would be um, one aspect. Uh, I think that this pioneering some of these different sorts of approaches where I think, you know, in many ways, again, I think we're, we're, there are other organizations that are doing it, but I think as a, as a large organization, I think we're moving uh, forward in that way. And I think in this country, it would be a loss for the voice that we have with our policymakers. We have a network of over 200,000 volunteers throughout this country who are our kind of voice for the voiceless here in this country. 
um, they go and talk to their legislators in, so that they know that there are people in this country that really care about these issues of the global poor. And I think it's a huge contribution that we make that is in, in addition to the things that we do on the ground, but making sure that people in this country think about how do our actions impact people around the world, and having a, a voice for that I think is incredibly important. Perfect. I would agree. <laughs> I would agree. Um, where are our students? Who's going to be the first? This one over here. <laughs> Don't check it out now. <laughs> All right. Well, they, there's others. Questions. I have a question. Jim Falk. It's been a. I've learned the news. I spent a bit more time in airports than I planned to, so I'm sorry I'm late. But I wonder if you could talk about what's happening in Af Afghanistan a bit more and how the uh, uh, troop withdrawal may affect uh, some of the progress that you've been able to make. Yeah, I think it's a real, you know, it's a real concern. And um, as we all know, that's um, a delicate, delicate situation for a whole range of reasons. But again, I think because of this issue around girls and women, uh, you know, we're really concerned. There's been a lot of progress made with inclusion of women in uh, all across the, the um, uh, country. And so I think that's a big issue that we are concerned about. You know, just the whole issue of instability generally. Um, relatively speaking, Afghanistan has been somewhat stable. I mean, it's, you know, um, in the last year particularly, it's, it's had problems, uh, more problems, and I think leading up to elections and all the rest, it's been increasingly unstable. So I think just the, the stability. And will, in fact, um, organizations that are international, will they have a tougher time working in Afghanistan? I think those are the kinds of things we're, we're really concerned about. We're committed. We've been in Afghanistan um, you know, over 50 years now, and you know, um, have a strong sense of community. It was actually the first country that I went to when I first came to care, and so I was learning a lot when I when I went. And I remember going to very very, very rural areas and just asking everyday people, you know, so what do you think about care? And they said, well, you know, we think care is part of our community. You're part of our fabric. We, you know, we work with you because you're trusted. You've been here, um, and so you know. I think we really are concerned about whether instability is going to have an impact on that, but we're pretty committed to being there. I think the uh, United Nations, uh, the largest refugee camp for the Palestinians, sanctioned by the United Nations. Have you? Any penetration in them? Do you have any hope to penetrate there? Can you help? Or is that just a totally unsolvable situation? Well, you know, we're in um, West Bank and Gaza, and we've been there for, again, um, I think 60 years. Uh, well, we've been there since um, just after 1946. Um, you know, we're, we're committed to, to our work there. We're not involved in the political side of it. Our work is really on empowering communities and we're going to continue. We do a lot of work in economic empowerment, a lot of work um, particularly in, in Gaza we've had to be involved unfortunately in a lot of kind of emergency relief work. 
Um, but we're, you know, we're committed to staying there. Uh, we have a very, very strong sta staff. Um, but it's a, you know, it's challenging situation, challenging time. We feel our contribution is by strengthening the communities and hoping that as the political winds continue to twist and go, you know, kind of twist and fro, that hopefully someday there will be a much more peaceful uh, situation there and a much more stable situation. Yes, I would like to make a comment and say how much we appreciate all the work that you're doing because I work with an organization in Nairobi and Kenya and we rehabilitate women. So thank you so much for what you do because you're a perfect example of how one person always, not can, but always, always makes a difference. And when you educate a woman, you profoundly change the world. And we thank you so much for what you're doing. And one quick question, do we have any more information on the girls that have been kidnapped? No, we don't. And you know, Nigeria uh, is a country we're not directly involved in. Um, we just haven't been by historical accident or whatever. Uh, but you know, our contribution is trying to uh, continue to highlight why educating a girl is uh, a girl is so important, and all the the things around why it's important that societies value girls. Um, and so, you know, like the world, our heart kind of cries out for you. Know, you can just imagine what a, a mother or father must feel like to not know where their daughter is. I mean, it's, it's just a you know, difficult situation. But while that's high profile, it's not unique. And I think that's the other message, is that what, this one is much more high profile. It's much more horrendous because we're seeing it on the news or, um, and it's you know, bringing it to people. But it's not in isolation. And, and so you know, I think we've got to continue to remember that there are many such situations where girls are uh, kidnapped and sold off or their potential robbed in other ways. So, um. Hi, I have a nonprofit. I'm called the Red Umbrella and we're about to go into Syria for um, into the refugee camps hoping to do something to empower women and girls. What advice do you have, if any, for a small nonprofit such as ours to going into these camps? We're going to Saida, a city in the south, um, southern part of Lebanon hoping to, you know, do a, uh, we're going to do some interviews and we're partnering with some local organizations. Yeah, well, that was what I was going to say. I mean, the biggest thing is, is, you know, working in partnership and finding organizations that you can work with because it's such a, you know, it's such an overwhelming situation and it's another one that I think people have in some ways kind of forgotten. Um, there is so much focus and rightfully so on finding a solution to the situation long term, but in the meantime, you know, there's uh, you know, in the range of six million people that are e either internally displaced or who have become refugee. And I think you know, we, we need to really look at how do we unite all the different efforts of organizations. And so often in these kind of um, challenging situations, people go one at a time and try to work in isolation. But the more you can link with other organizations, you know, I think that's, that's where the real strength comes. Um, I have a question. It's more personal. Um, so you have an MD, and I'm wondering if you can talk about your role in the international health arena as opposed to the domestic health. 
Um, did it find you? Did you find it? Um, was it planned by accident? Just a little bit about the difference between the two. Well, I started out, um, I, my background, I'm a pediatrician by background. I went to, um, after finishing my pediatric training, went to the Centers for Disease Control and spent 20 years there and did a mix of domestic and international. I always feel like um, we don't do enough of the interchange between the two because there's so much that we do internationally that could inform what we do here and vice versa. But I think oftentimes we think a lot more of taking out what we know uh, to poor communities where I think there's a lot more that we could bring back that would help us in, in the work that we do. Uh, as ordinary citizens here, what can we do beyond giving money to care? How can we advance the mission of care specifically? Um, well, you can give money to care. <laughs> 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 I mentioned before the, the advocacy work that we do, and I really do uh, think that that's an important part of our work. And it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, everybody has to, you know, go out and storm um, Congress, but it's writing letters. It's giving voice to these issues. Uh, it's very easy. We, we make it easy for people. You can go on our website and join the Care Action Network, and you become part of a network of people who make it clear that these issues matter. We have a conference, we do a lot of work, and um, Philippe, who is here, is the district court, uh, our coordinator for this um, uh, region. He has, a, he has a region of 17 states or so, uh, but based here in Texas. And they do a lot of work. I was uh, earlier today visiting with um, Kay Granger, who is an incredible um, champion for global issues. And we also, once a year, bring our volunteers, well, the volunteers actually bring themselves, they pay their way, they come to Washington, learn about issues, uh, bills that might be going through Congress at the time that, that are um, involved in the work that we do, and then they go and they talk to their congresspeople. It's the most wonderful event because you get people who never thought that they could walk into their, their legislator's office and talk about these issues and it has so much impact. I mean, I know that, and I spent a lot of time, um, you know, on Capitol Hill, but they know this is what I do. You know, this is my job. I care about it. But it's still, it's my job. But when you go in and you vote and you put them there, um, or you could put them there, you know, that's, that has a different power. And so, you know, we love to have people get more involved in our advocacy. You know, you can do as little as write a letter or just get or get the information and stay informed or as much as becoming an active part of actually going and, and talking to um, uh, your representatives. Um, but I think also all of us have the responsibility of talking about these issues, you know, whether it's your church, your synagogue, your sorority, fraternity, whatever, you know, making it clear why it matters that we as the United States remain engaged in the world. And we're going through a time when, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, let's just think about our own box and our own problems. And we've got a lot of problems here. We all know that. Um, you know, we have growing income inequality. We have, you know, the issues of, you know, inadequate education and on and on and on. But, you know, we also realize that we're so globally interconnected that the idea that we could just disengage and that the world would go on you know, it's just fallacies. I think we also have this responsibility to talk about these issues and why it matters for us to care. The uh, current conversation for 
nonprofits and mission-driven organizations is measuring the impact that they have with their activities. I think a strong catalyst for that was the Millennium Development Goals, where very specific yeah. goals with very specific metrics were set. So I wonder if you could talk uh, a little bit about how CARE does that, how you measure the impact in the countries that you've been in for, you know, you mentioned you've been some places for 50 years. And if you look to go into countries outside of the 86 countries you're already in, how do you decide which programs or what criteria do you look for to start a new initiative in a new country? So, yeah, it's a good question. And I think, you know, again, I think we've evolved a lot. And the world's evolved a lot. And you mentioned the Gage Foundation. I think, you know, having this large philanthropy that is built on business principles where metrics and measuring your outcomes has become much more, you know, much more of a driver. Uh, you know, I think we're all getting better at it. And, you know, I think impact used to be measured by uh, did you finish a grant and did you have the, you know, kind of outcome measures that the grant asked for, whether it's building the number of wells or feeding the number of people, whatever. You know, I think we've really shifted to say that, you know, what we want to do is to look at can we have impact on given population? So if we're working in a country, we talk about what's the impact population that we're going to, to look at. And how do we look at longer term measures of change? You know, whether it's income, whether it is decreases in death, or whatever the, you know, whether it's increase in um, agriculture yield, but also look at what are the other factors around that? Did we, in fact, uh, have more people, more communities that were empowered to exercise their rights? Do we have greater community participation in um, civic and, and, and civic engagement? So we look at all of those different kinds of measures. Um, and, you know, I think it is one of the biggest challenges. Anybody who's run um, a, you know, a, a not-for-profit or a program that, that is mission-driven, People will fund you for programs. Very few people will fund you for measuring impact, but everybody wants it. So, you know, it really is a real challenge um, both to do it and do it well. What we've tried to do is to partner with organizations, particularly like, like universities, who do this kind of thing very well, and do some really, really well-done impact studies for some programs that we think are kind of Cadillac activities that will kind of give you the proof of concept that you can then use um, and, and, and scale up more broadly, but looking at doing selective impact studies uh, with university or evaluation groups so that in some of our areas we actually have really strong um, impact measures and uh, impact and outcome measures. You know, we, we tend to end up going to new countries when there is an emergency. That oftentimes is our entry point. And then looking at, all right, is there a reason for us to stay longer term? And so most of the countries that we've entered recently have been because of um, you know, disaster situations that we then make a longer term commitment. But again, many of the countries that we've been in, we've been in for many, many years, and we continue to evolve. Where do we think that we can have the greatest usefulness given what other organizations are doing, what we think our niche is, and where we think we can make the greatest difference. Two more questions, and this young man over here has had his arm up several times, and this lady here. So it's a one-two punch, okay? Sorry. Yes, please. Okay. Yes, um, my question is, I wanted to pick up on something that you said earlier about the bridge between domestic and international activities 
and ask you about what is CARE doing in the United States to help um, underserved populations here, and if you're doing anything to establish those linkages like the social enterprises that you mentioned or social businesses between people here in the United States and other countries. So could you talk a little bit about that aspect? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't do any programs specifically in the United States, and it's it's a um, it's something that comes up from time to time because I yeah I do think that this link between domestic and international um, is an important one. On the other hand, there are a lot of wonderful organizations whose missions are domestic, and you know you always have to make some kind of um, you know yeah exactly <laughs> you always have to make some kind of choices. Uh, around how much you stretch beyond your mission, how much you have what people call mission creep, if you will. So, you know, I, I don't have a satisfactory answer. I wish we could do, figure out ways that perhaps in some small way we could contribute more to actual programming. But again, you know, everyone has their niche. Ours has been global. And, you know, to the extent that we can share lessons, then I think, you know, we do try to do that in ways that can take some of our international lessons and, and share those. But this does pull in a thread that Dr. Gill talked about earlier about collaboration. Yeah. And that, again, her organization has partnered with a number of the women's funds, organizations like the Global Fund for Women and others. Right. And so there are places where we're all seeing that there's opportunities for collaboration with the domestic and the international to create that learning channel. And um, and there's much more will for that now than perhaps there was yeah, even ever before. Yeah. So, young yeah, gentlemen. Last word. Thank you. This is Gail. Last month, my classmates in fifth grade built a school in Haiti. That is why I'm grateful for what you do. My question is, while you were growing up, who was the person who helped you become what you are right now? Thank you. Um, and thank you so much for the work that you have done. It. Did you actually get a chance to visit Haiti? Uh, yes. Wow, wow, that's fabulous. Um, I guess, you know, I think that uh, when I think about my greatest childhood influences, it, um, are your parents here? Yes. I was going to say, my greatest childhood influences were my parents, so <laughs> kudos to parents. Um, you know, I grew up in a family where my parents firmly believed that for too much is given, much is expected, and that, you know, we were um, able to get a good education and, you know, that, that we owed society uh, something and gave society back, something back. My parents tried to expose me to a whole range of different people who did great things. Um, so I think really, I you know, I, I look back to my early days and what the kinds of things that my parents taught me and felt like that really is kind of my foundation. One thing we're going to do is we reward patience at the World Affairs Council, and someone has been extremely patient. So you, you get to now, at last, the last question. Oh, oh great. Thank you. Um, you gave a hypothetical of um, something that you might have learned in Peru and taken it and applied it to Ghana or somewhere else. Can you give an example of, of something that you have learned in one country and applied it somewhere else? Yeah, um, uh, and that also reminds me of something else I was going to say about another question. So, um, I, Peru, as an example, is a, is a country where we were working in one of the areas in rural Peru where uh, that had the highest rates of maternal mortality in the country. And in a program that we did there, 
we were able to reduce the rates of mother dying um, due to childbirth by 50%. And we're able to then you know, export that to other countries that we work in around the world. And a lot of it was really simple. A lot of it was listening to the women uh, and what were their problems. That they weren't accessing, uh, what were the reasons that they weren't accessing um, health care. They were in, situ in, in communities where there were actually clinics available but most of the women were, were um, having their births at home. And we talked to, to women about why were they doing that. Well, one, they uh, went to places that had people who didn't speak their local language. The doctors were trained in capital cities. They spoke Spanish. They didn't speak the native language of the women. So they didn't have people who talked to them. They didn't have people who respected their culture. Um, in their culture, white meant death. So you go to a clinic where all the sheets are white, you know, and you're about to deliver a child, this is not going to be a winning situation. And, you know, I mean, there were a lot of things about how the services were managed that didn't really take the, the needs of the women into consideration. And so by strengthening the relationship between the patient and the health care providers, it made a huge difference. There were other things that we did that were more in the realm of strengthening medical practices, but a lot of it had to do with just making the places much more hospitable to the local, um, to, to women in the local cultures, and doing that in a way that could be scaled up, along with making sure that we were, um, that they were getting the kind of training that was relevant and, and facilities had, had, um, um, adequate resources, etc. But all that we were able to export in other places and we've been able to demonstrate some of the same sorts of um, uh, declines. Back to, another, to the question the woman in front of you asked earlier also about some of the successes. One of the ways that we also feel like we're successful is when we're able to graduate countries and they can become um, self-sustaining. So Peru is a good example of a country that now is a nationally independent care member that is no longer kind of under our management umbrella. We've been able to do that in Thailand. We've done that in India. We've done that in Brazil. So, you know, when we feel like a country is able to actually, quote, evolve and graduate and become a self-sustaining part of the membership and part of the umbrella, you know, that's a success, and we're seeing that much more. Awesome. Well, Dr. Gale, I want to thank you on behalf of all of our friends and members, and especially our sponsors tonight, for being with us. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.